Hello and welcome to Orange Source Wall. My name is Elvis and as always, I'm your host. Alright, it's going to be kind of a long one. We have a bunch of things to review and another really special Halloween blot review. Our last one of the month. Alright, so let's get on right into this with the big news topic this week, which is that Jonathan Entwistle, who created and sure ran the adaptations of Charles Forsman's The End of the Fucking World and I Am Not Okay With This, has been tapped by Hasbro to basically be the main architect behind their new line of Power Rangers live action properties. This would include new original shows based on the license and original theatrical movies. Now, the latter has already been rumored for months, and I think it was announced even. But now we're seeing the fuller scope of Hasbro's plans here. They want an interconnected universe. And, you know, best luck to them. It hardly ever works out. And Entwistle did strike gold with the end of the fucking world. And I hope that, at the very least, whatever comes out of this arrangement lives up to that quality. Because I'm not okay if this was pretty damn bad. And also added on to this, apparently Brian Edward Hill has already been tapped to write a draft of the first movie. So fingers crossed that it works out. Alright, so some short bits. We have confirmation that Red Hood will appear in the third season of Titans and we've already gotten some concept art for his look slash costume for that season. Good luck for fans of that show because I have dropped it for good and hope they get something that's enjoyable out of it. And also Oscar Isaac has been cast as Moon Knight in the upcoming Disney Plus show. Good for him and again, fingers crossed. Alright, let's move on to what I read this week. First off, we have Immortal Hulk number 39. This has to be one of the most emotionally shattering issues of a run that has been almost full of emotional peaks and lows. Like, we follow Betty on her journey of self-assessment and reaffirmation for her trauma and inner fortitude, or with Brian Banner and his determination to be steadfast in his hatred and abuse, or with Doc and Sasquatch and their hidden insecurities and neuroses. But this one has to cake for how just sorrowful it is. But let's backtrack a bit. What this issue does really well is that it makes for a great cap off to this arc. It's about as breezy as the past few issues have been, very scant and light in terms of content, but the impact and weight of the content is what makes all the difference. We're treated to an even closer look at just how callous and monstrous and cruel the leader has been behind the scenes. As if we really haven't seen enough of that, this goes even harder. It takes it to such a distinct level of animosity and indifference that it repels what was essentially a single fight scene into something more grand, with the stakes more heavy, and it's more passionate. As I've said before, this is not only a definitive Hulk run, but it's turning out to be an end-all, be-all leader story. He's going to have to be put on a high shelf after this, and for a long time. Now the other aforementioned cornerstone of this issue is that it brings everything concerning Bruce and the Hulk's relationship with his father to a head. Yes, we know they hate his father. We know that they're scared of him, scared of becoming him, ashamed of killing him, proud of killing him. All sorts of really intense things that are all knotted up together. And we get one last nod here. The Hulk and Bruce loves his father. Out of everything, innately, deep down, he still loves his father and he wants to be loved by him. And that is why Bruce and the Hulk never let Devil Hulk out. It wasn't because they were scared he was going to destroy the world. That might have been just a lie they told themselves. But because it was part of themselves that represented their desire for their father to die. And inside, they reject that. They reject that emotion. And we get the most enraging, but also the most human and understandable betrayal of this in this issue. When Savage Hulk... The Hulk that is Bruce as a child, his child itself, given form, stops the Devil Hulk from killing the leader because inside of him still lives Brian Banner and Savage Hulk just can't bear to see his dad die. And this lets Devil and Bruce, well, get completely destroyed and fucked up by the leader. And yeah, it's easy to be mad at Savage Hulk. It's easy to be angry that he basically stabbed everyone else in the back and let everyone down slash die. But it's such a pitiable and desperate situation. And you know what they say, you know, parents are God in the eyes of the child. And it's just an intense emotion and just how despairing it is. There's, there's no good solution here. And you 
can't really be mad at Savage that much because he's been through a lot. And Ewing sells that emotion and Bennett sells that emotion. Everyone else working on this issue sells that emotion so genuinely that it's heartbreaking. And you know, yeah, intense issue. Short and thrifty, but intense. And I cannot wait to see what happens next. Two thumbs up. Next up, we have shoe number four. I'll be quick about this because this is still a really boring series. Saffron Chu is really bland and uninspired. Her boyfriend is still even worse. And their plot is still incredibly cliche in all of the worst ways. Where this series really excels still is as a true prequel. And the elements that really do hit are those elements. And that's what makes this engaging when it is. Overall, it's still one thumb down, one thumb middle. Moving ahead, we have Hellblazer number 11. And this was a goddamn brilliant issue. It's maybe a pretty standardly constructed one, a bit info and exposition heavy, but it works alongside the same wavelength that all the best issues of this run have done so far. Just someone telling a story. And like those other issues, that's directly within Spurrier's wheelhouse. And he takes the opportunity to weave a tightly knit and engagingly horrifying and disgusting tale about moral and ethical fear, corruption, manipulation, exploitation, and narcissism. And how this can and will infect and spread through a national zeitgeist like a plague. Like the last few issues, it takes no prisoners of how Spurrier sees the state of the UK right now. And the state of the UK as an operating entity in itself. Which is perfect. It's the kind of thing that Hellblazer as a franchise has always been best at. And it's what should be doing. It makes... All the kind of supernatural cop shenanigans so damn lame in comparison. And creating a fucking pseudo Neil Faraz type that gets used by a mythical boogeyman that is then usurped by the actual evils of the government is, is gold. It's a gold idea. And to cap it off with the living embodiment of Britain as a concept being fucked to death basically by its own government literally is beautiful. It's, it's, just, it's top-notch cynical stuff. And seeing Constantine wrangle with that is always a joy. To witness him realize that despite all of his bitterness, no, humans can sink lower and lower, and he was foolish to be naive at heart. There's also a few good character twists in this issue that I hope get paid off in the finale. Because next issue is the end. And you know what? Farewell, Spurrier. It's been an incredible ride, and this series has been truly, truly amazing. Two thumbs up. And lastly, we have Exosword Stasis. Alright, so now we've gotten into the true midpoint of this X-Men event, and honestly... This issue didn't feel really necessary, and a lot of it wasn't. There's maybe one really great bit in this that does add a lot of personality and weight to the Racco side that rounds out the passion and emotion that lies for them. The rest of the checklist of wacky gimmicks and cliches, and while superficially fun, feel pretty hollow and uninteresting. Like, I get the gags, but it's so boring as fuck to see them all in one go, one after the other. So that's a shame, because I felt like the last 10 issues had done a mostly decent job at rounding out the the characters and the stakes and the drama of the Krakoa side and maybe it's too much to expect one issue to do it for the Racco, but it felt like it wasn't really trying that hard to be as interesting as it could have been it felt like uh like a gag it really does feel like a stopgap intermission issue rather than something substantial and weighty i know there's still some stuff to be done and some foreshadowing and this was actually pretty interesting but it could have been handled so much better overall two funds middle and I can't wait for next week though. Anyway, let's move on to our fourth and final special Halloween review of Unsourced Walt's third annual Halloween blowout. And the winner of this final week was Blade 2, directed by Guillermo del Toro and again starring Wesley Snipes. Now this is commonly referred to as one of the best superhero movies of the early 2000s, or ever. And let me tell you now, that's true. Like holy shit, this is the movie that the Spawn movie wishes it was. Hell, the Spawn movie wishes that it was the first Blade. Because this movie begins... 
it begins in the most coolest way possible it is for a vampire movie to begin. Like you have what looks like a homeless hobo being led into a vampire trap only for him to turn tables around and reveal that he's a vampire. Only for that to be turned right around again and it turns out he's not even a vampire and that he's on a kind of mission to kill vampires wherever he can. Right for his mouth tentacles shoot out the camera. And then the raving electro music kicks in and I mean, fuck yes. It knocks all the air out of the room and replaces it with pure excitement and adrenaline. Not only the idea that there's this new kind of vampire that is also waging a war against them, but also living like a bum, but that it also has this kind of obscured new design that's pretty unique and exciting, and it really does kick things off amped attitude. In fact, it's so exciting and interesting an idea that Del Toro kind of ripped himself off in order to reuse it in his own series of novels and eventual later television adaptation of said novels, The Strain. Like he just lifts the design and functionality elements for this new breed of vampire called Reapers from here wholesale to there. And it's kind of astounding. And to Blade 2's credit that the version that Del Toro was able to do whatever he wanted to with in his novels and in the TV show was somehow way worse and less interesting than this one was. Because there it misses the spark of, you know, something that went wrong. That it's an aberration. That it's an abomination even to the sight of vampires. It gives the inclusion just a bit more weight than it just being a regular vampire mythos of some light religious elements that never really go here. Plus, having it be a new breed in Blade 2 and having it seen in such a light gives it the perfect cause for why Blade and the vampires should become allies. If just for once. Because it presents itself as an existential threat to them both. But on the other hand, it also works as the perfect mirror and foil to Blade himself. As a daywalker, he himself is an abomination and anomaly to the role of vampires, and a threat to them too. So it creates that real sense of yin and yang and balance. It's humanizing in a whole bunch of fun ways for both sides, but also it shows why vampires are pretty evil and why maybe this new breed isn't as bad, even though they're way more vicious and unorganized and feral, so to speak. And all this makes sense, given that that has always been one of Del Toro's biggest indulgences, adding some dimension, vulnerability, and humanity to his monsters. Hell, it was meant to be a huge part of the Mimic series before they cut out the original ending and the entire subplot and foreshadowing. And the fact that this goes all the way to a level of sacrificiality in the end of the movie shouldn't be shocking in the least. And it does round out a pretty well done emotional core for Blade 2. It's somber in the right places, heartening in a few, and, you know, action-packed and blockbustery mind turn your mind off when it counts. That's basically Del Toro's forte. That he has all that, but also includes a bunch of sword-fighting, flipping, snaking mayhem is just a bonus. Even if the CGI is a bit dated, and dated in a way that is less excusable than, say, the angel demon skeletons and blood tornado from the first movie. But, you know, it's still really fun. And speaking of the first movie, if I had to compare the two, I would put them neck and neck. They both excel at different things. Blade 2 has a better constructed and more emotionally meaningful story. While the first is more madcap and it's an unabashed roller coaster ride of a movie. Really riding the wave between being a little more serious, a little more dark, but also being really wacky and silly and goofy and just loving it. Another distinct difference is that the first really lent itself into an urban environment, an urban horror style story. The cityscape, nightlife, and characters deriving from it. The second is a little bit more sterile. It's more otherworldly, it's more hidden-worldly, and it's more European. And that's not worse, it's just different. Although the lack of the character of Dr. Karen Johnson from the first is sorely felt, she did add a lot of a grounding presence that this one kind of lacks. It feels like we stepped into Wonderland the moment Blade meets up with the Blood Pack. Overall, it's still a really damn good time. There's some dated flubs here or there, but it's well worth every second. And if it was just these two movies, then that'd be great, but... 
we also have Blade Trilogy. And you can best be sure that will be on the docket for next year's polls. So can't wait to see that and how they mess that up. Overall, Blade 2 gets two thumbs up. And I just want to say thank you so much for making this a really fun Halloween blowout this year. We got some really great movies in here and some not very great ones. But it was just fun trying to find some way to talk about them in a way that felt a little bit more substantial than my regular reviews. So thank you again for everyone who voted in the poll. It meant so much to me. I hope that you enjoyed all these movies. Anyway, I want to say thank you so much for listening. It means a lot to me. It's really humbling. And I can't wait to go back to ask more questions next week. So, you know, see you then. I want to give a shout out to Cabarrus at D-O-T-E-M-C-E. Please shout them out. They're amazing. And I want to say, you know, have a great week. And see you again next time. Happy Halloween. Stay safe.